Welcome to BreezeLine, where next-level internet speeds mean next-level productivity. Whether it's back to school, back to work, or back to reality, don't let slow internet slow down your game. Kick it up a notch with a game-changing offer of 1 gig fiber-fast speeds for only $59.99 per month. Choose BreezeLine and get next-level internet and faster speeds backed by a fiber-powered network. Terms and conditions apply. Go to BreezeLine.com to learn more. This is... Max Hedrum. Hello? Anybody home? Our generation may not remember the moon landing, but we remember moon boots. If you owe a few cavities to candy cigarettes, learn your adverbs from schoolhouse rocks, burn your shins on a hot metal slide with sharp edges, exploding pop rocks for science, and you still want your MTV, then this podcast is for you. Dancing With Myself is dedicated to the decade of excess, the 1980s. So pull up your leg warmers and let's get physical. Hello, I'm Heather and this is Dancing With Myself. In November 1983, televangelist Jerry Falwell sued Hustler magazine over an incestuous parody interview, which was the same year that the U.S. News and World Report ranked Falwell as one of the 25 most influential Americans. Religion and politics marched down the aisle in the 1980s, and the man credited with performing the marriage was Falwell. From his base of operations at the Thomas Road Baptist Church in his hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia, Falwell's fundamentalist old-time gospel hour had been beamed every Sunday evening since the early 1970s to nearly 2 million households. By the dawn of the 1980s, he recognized the political potential of his televised ministry and launched the organization he confidently named the Moral Majority to reverse the politicization of immorality in our society. Quote, his timing could have been better. The 1980 Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan, agreeing with the organization's stand on school prayer and abortion, received the support of Falwell's well-financed outfit. Without the help of the moral majority, said pollster Lou Harris, Reagan would have lost the election by one percentage point. Falwell had precisely the right qualities for making a success of a TV ministry. He was congenial yet earnest, confident yet humble, reasonable yet morally righteous, which is what Time referred to as an artful entrepreneur in Rube's clothing. His preaching awakened in the public deep-seated feelings on abortion, homosexuality, pornography, education, and feminism, and by mid-decade was raising more than $100 million a year in the process. Quote, we want to be part of society without endorsing all the philosophies and lifestyles of that society, Falwell declared. Enough Americans agreed that not only U.S. politicians, but international figures from South African Prime Minister P.W. Botha to members of Israeli's religious right heeded his opinion as he covered over 8,000 miles a week in his Israeli-built jet purchased by the church. By 1989, however, televangelism was reeling from scandals involving some of Falwell's fellow TV ministers, and the squeaky-clean leader of the moral majority dissolved the organization. Despite this setback, a biographer's claim that Falwell has altered the terms of political discourse in this country was true beyond any dispute. (laughs) 
sales of playthings in the U.S. hit a record $13.4 billion as the decade fostered one kid's craze after another. Youngsters could choose from an impressive assortment of products at every level of sophistication, from simple toy figurines to complex computer games. Still prized by the younger set after more than two decades, Mattel's Barbie doll appeared in new Hispanic, African-American, and Asian versions. Teddy Ruxpin, a talking teddy bear, became a huge favorite. His speech produced by built-in microchip. Low-tech Cabbage Patch Kids were a surprise hit, projecting an irresistible appeal as orphans who had been born in a cabbage field and coming with an official adoption certificate. The frenzy for Cabbage Patch Kids during the 1983 Christmas season led to parental desperation. One man even flew to London to buy a doll for his daughter. And as children became a predominant concern among maturing baby boomers, the yellow baby on board sign appeared in thousands of car windows across the nation. What is most interesting about the first Rambo movie is what it is not. It is not a story that glories in violence or delights in the military prowess of its hero. It is not a pro-America tale about an unstoppable war hero or a mindless excuse to kill loads of people. It is a movie about trauma and closed-mindedness and paranoia. No matter how gung-ho the sequels are, First Blood is a thoughtful movie that is a tragedy rather than the kind of weightless bloodbath we've seen since, sometimes from the same franchise. Rambo may have become a byword for any one-man army, but this original movie is a far smarter and sadder beast. It is based on David Morrill's Vietnam-era novel about a Vietnam veteran who comes home from the war to find himself treated like one of the hippies who protested against it. A small-town sheriff doesn't like the looks of this drifter and tries to run him out of town, whereupon the former Green Beret reverts to his training and goes to war. The book has a significantly higher body count than the movie, with Rambo slaying about 200 people. When Stallone came aboard the film and asked to rewrite the script, he removed most of the killing. This Rambo is not directly responsible for any deaths, just a few major woundings and indirectly a fall from a helicopter. This lets us sympathize with him and adds to the pathos of his plight. When we meet Stallone's John J. Rambo, he has wandered up to Washington State in search of his war buddy, Delmar Barry. He learns that Delmar died of cancer due to his exposure to Agent Orange during the war, and as he walks up the road into the ironically named Town of Hope, he still seems stunned, perhaps grief-stricken. It's in that frame of mind that he is stopped by Sheriff Will Teasel, played by Brian Dennehy. One of those law and order cops who considers it his mission to apprehend anyone he judges to be poorly dressed. He tries to drive Rambo out of town. And when the vet stubbornly heads back, the sheriff arrests him for vagrancy, resisting arrest, and carrying a concealed weapon, a large knife. They beat him up, use a water cannon as a shower, and are about to give him a dry shave when he has a flashback to his time as a POW in Vietnam and freaks out. Rambo punches his way through half the station personnel and escapes to the street, where he steals a dirt bike and makes for the woods. 
Once there, John Rambo is unstoppable. A massive manhunt can't capture him, and soon six of the sheriff's deputies have been injured by his improvised booby traps, while another falls from a helicopter while trying to shoot Rambo dead. He holds a knife to Teasel's throat and tells him, quote, In town, you're the law. Out here, it's me. Don't push it, or I'll give you a war you wouldn't believe. Despite, or perhaps because, of his visible terror, Teasel pushes it. The only hope for de-escalation comes with the arrival of Colonel Troutman, played by Richard Crenna, Rambo's wartime commanding officer. He announces himself as the man who made the decorated Green Beret and claims, quote, I didn't come here to rescue Rambo from you. I came to rescue you from him. But he's been absent too long and can't calm his soldier quickly enough. Rambo disables more men, blows up a gas station and a gun shop, and attacks Teasel at his headquarters before Trotman can talk him down face-to-face. What happens next is one of those moments that sets this movie apart from its imitators. Rambo breaks down into a rambling speech about his dead comrades in arms and falls crying into the arms of his former CO. This, too, is a change from the book, where Trotman shoots Rambo in the head to end both his rampage and his misery. Here, he lives to fight another day, although he will do so with far less nuanced politics than in his anti-war debut. The film's first cut came in over three hours, and Stallone worried that it was career-ending bad. But director Todd Kotchoff stripped it entirely back into a propulsive and remarkable, effective 90-minute hit. The dialogue, light, action-heavy, and brilliantly paced result was a hugely powerful influence on action movies that followed. Um, For example, Predator owes this film a huge debt. But if you had the impact that Rambo had when it acknowledged the high price of going to war and transforming a man into a perfect killing machine. For all his know-how, Rambo is not an uncomplicated hero. Did you know that Steve McQueen was the first person considered for the role of Rambo back in 1975, but he was judged too old to play a relatively recent Vietnam veteran? Making it to Wednesday is a win in itself, and Dunkin' thinks you deserve a reward. That's why every Wednesday, now through December, Dunkin' Rewards members get a free donut with drink purchase. So whether you like your midweek pick-me-ups oozing with chocolate or filled with jelly, it's on us because you deserve it. Save time and order ahead on the app with Dunkin' Rewards. Not a member? Join today. America runs on Dunkin'. Limit one classic donut per member per Wednesday. Terms and exclusions may apply. Participation may vary. Offer ends 12-27-2023.